You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 75, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is David Leonard, Chief Legal Officer for the Spectrum Health System. Spectrum Health is the medical system where I do most of my work in anesthesia. It's also based primarily in Grand Rapids. However, it is in many locations in West Michigan. And only because I got in trouble with this many years ago when I was in the Upper Peninsula. If you're familiar with Michigan, there's both a Lower Peninsula and an Upper Peninsula. Uh, the Upper Peninsula, when you refer to West Michigan, of course, you're talking about Iron Mountain. And that's the uh, on the Wisconsin border. So when I speak in West Michigan, I meet very loosely in the Lower Peninsula, which is west of Lansing and on the Lake Michigan Lakeshore. But anyway, David is a good friend and someone with intimate knowledge of how a health system operates from illegal machinations and the things that no one ever talks about and I think are interesting. And if you have any sort of curiosity about how a hospital works, just you know the nuts and bolts, this is a great episode. And it's going to be fairly brief in the sense that it's in just one show we're going to cover kind of everything as far as credentialing, um, the governance. For instance, when you walk in the hospital, you know, who's the boss and how do things get done? How are the processes existing in how you go through the check-in process for, say, surgery or if you're coming out of the emergency room? How do the CT scanners get there? How is the laboratory organized? How do phlebotomists show up? You know, those sorts of th- nuts and bolts, no one really knows. You don't really think about it. And just like going to any other store or any sort of business, for the most part, as a customer, you don't really care. Uh, but you just want to get whatever product or service they provide. But as so often the case in medicine, it's important to kind of know how things on a basic structure operate because it then helps you diagnose the problems and certainly solutions for what ails our healthcare system. So today we're just going to talk about the hospital and how it runs. And then we're going to talk about sort of what got me into thinking about this to begin with. When it comes to the accreditation process, which is essentially who's allowed to work in the hospital and get granted privileges for performing surgery or taking care of a patient in a heart attack or whatever it might be. How do you have people get in and practice for long periods of time or maybe perhaps even in multiple hospitals who are causing lots of harm? And the great example of this is the doctor known as Dr. Death in Texas, Dr. Christopher Dunch, where he was operating and causing all kinds of harm, damage, pain and suffering, multiple hospitals and it took sort of heroic efforts to for people to stop him from doing this and so what sort of safeguards are there in hospitals is it different now than it was back then and I think that we talk about that a little bit too but you know how is that how does that happen and how are that prevented and how do hospitals and and certainly colleagues you know other physicians in the hospital how do they protect each other from people who are causing harm and how do they stop them if they're harming their patients so we talk about all that again Show notes page will be at theparadox.com slash 075. 
there'll be a few things on there that you can reference. I would encourage you to go to iTunes right now or whatever podcast player you're using. Please leave a written rating. Five stars is always encouraged. And if you're so interested, it is New Year, so you're welcome to go to patreon.com slash theparadox. And there you can contribute to the show and become a patron supporter and help support this enterprise. But without further ado, David Leonard, Chief Legal Officer at Spectrum Health System on how hospitals work. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm delighted to have my good friend here, David Leonard, who's the Chief Legal Officer at Spectrum Health System in Grand Rapids, Michigan. David, thank you so much for joining the Paradox today. My pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to be another type of doc with you. I, you know, I really like the Paradox theme, so I don't have an MD, but I do have a JD, so I think I qualify. You do, absolutely. You're actually the second JD I've had on. So, Actually, I think I've had a couple JDs. Who, some of them are also MDs, but... We, as long as you have the D in there somewhere, we'll, we'll get a pass. Um, and, you know, for what people are paying for the show, I think it's just fine. Uh, let's start off with a, a little bit of background about you. And you're an attorney, obviously, at Spectrum Health, which is, for those who are not familiar, which I wouldn't expect you to be, it's Grand Rapids, a hospital system, uh, nonprofit hospital system. And uh, tell us a little bit of your journey about how you ended up at a hospital out of from law sure, school. Sure, happy to. And um, I would just point out to the audience that uh, Spectrum Health System, although based in Grand Rapids, is actually more of a holistic health system uh, comprised of approximately 15 hospitals. We employ uh, 1,500 uh, physicians and advanced, advanced practice providers, APPs. Uh, and have uh, one of the nation's most uh, renowned, uh, most successful health plans called Priority Health, uh, where we insure uh, almost 900,000 people around the state of Michigan and in 48 uh, states around the country. Uh, so we're really more of a health system, consider ourselves more of a health company and uh, very much interested in keeping people healthy rather than just uh, treating them when they become sick. And I am, uh, I have the privilege of serving as chief legal officer at Spectrum Health, where I'm responsible for legal services, as you w- would assume, but also um, risk management uh, and government affairs, and also work very closely with our corporate compliance function. Um, as you know, uh, from being a physician, we are hyper-regulated in healthcare, <laughs> yes. and uh, we... Um, uh, have no shortage of interesting days uh, in uh, legal risk compliance and government affairs at Spectrum Health. I started my uh, legal career in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I grew up. Um, I had a grade school teacher named Teddy Carnegas who told me that I argued with her so much that I should become an attorney. <laughs> and that stuck with me. And I kept arguing. I uh, went to uh, law school at Indiana University, also undergrad at IU. Um, and practiced with a health law firm in Indianapolis. Um, I was an associate for five years and a partner for three years called Hall, Render, Killing Heath, and Lyman, where I learned a lot about uh, serving hospitals and physicians um, mm-hmm. in uh, structuring how they provide services to their, to their patients. Uh, and then in 2002, uh, late 2001, early 2002, I got a call that Spectrum Health System was seeking its first general counsel, and I've served effectively in that role now for um, for almost 18 years. Uh, and um, it's uh, really uh, very interesting uh, to see what state and federal government uh, uh, throws our way as far as um, regulation and most of the time, I find that it's um, it's the bad apples that cause the rest of us to have to jump through so many hoops. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's probably the case for most laws that are written in general, right? It's mm-hmm. the, the one person does something terrible, and then you pass a general law that kind of affects everyone, and it's not oftentimes helpful. It's a hindrance oftentimes to getting the work done that you were doing fine anyway without, you know, most people don't need to have a regulation saying you're not allowed to put you know, poison in food. Yet we still have those regulations, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to talk to you today about something that most people probably know nothing about. In fact, I would argue most people who work within the hospital system really don't know much about either, which would be the governance of a hospital. Like, how does it even run? Because I think most people look at a hospital as 
you walk in and you get care and then you walk out. Then you receive bills from a number of different services. Uh, I know initially, and I think this is part of the progression for you when you entered Spectrum Health because Spectrum Health has changed significantly as healthcare has over the last 20 years or so. Uh, there was a merger for different hospitals, which was before you came on, but that was not, in 1997, right, about five close, years before right? I arrived. Correct. And yeah. since then, you know, yeah. the the hospital system has grown significantly. Other hospitals have been included. You've, you know, medical groups. You've had insurance companies, and all this sort of these sort of integrated care sort of model has been sort mm-hmm. of put together. Very similar to anywhere else in the country. I think there are a lot of these sorts of systems uh, in other cities. And a lot of that is driven by the hyper regulation and um, and by the expense of electronic health records. So it's yeah. so very expensive to run a healthcare enterprise today because it's so highly regulated and because the government requires you to have an electronic health record. Right. And so, so many smaller hospitals and smaller physician groups really can't afford to do that effectively alone. And that's really fueled so much of the growth of, of healthcare in the United States. Yeah. I think it's, and I've, we talked about that on the show a number of times too. And, and so when it comes to the hospitals, you know, again, someone walks in the hospital, they just get their care, they walk, they go home. But, you know, people work at the hospital. Explain to most people what the difference is in the hospital governance, right? Like, sure. Like it, from a physician standpoint, from a nursing standpoint, from, you know, corporate and how the, you know, people buy bedpans versus, you know, I mean, all that sort of stuff. Kind of just give a just general idea of what, sure. how to run. So there's really two tracks of governance in any hospital in, in the United States. One track is the general corporate governance, and that is the bigger picture overall governance of a hospital that is governed by a community board of directors. Um, So, for example, our main hospital, our medical center in Grand Rapids, has a community board of directors that's comprised of, I believe, 11 or 13, I'm forgetting the exact number, of community members. And some of those community members are our physicians, practicing physicians at, at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, others are, are various community leaders, you know, just our, our neighbors throughout the community who care deeply about how health care is delivered in their community. And they are responsible for overseeing, directing management of the hospital. They're, um, you know, they are careful not to get into the weeds of actually running the place. That's management's job. But they are responsible for, A, management of the hospital, but they're also responsible for the quality of care at yeah. the hospital. And their main agent for ensuring the quality of care at the hospital leads to the second track of governance in a hospital, and that's the medical staff. And in my introduction about our health system, about Spectrum Health, I neglected to reference another very key component of how we serve our neighbors in West Michigan. And that is the private medical staff, the independent um, physicians um, who are actually greater in number than the, uh, than the physicians we employ through the Spectrum Health Medical Group. So it's, and the medical staff really synthesizes the quality of care provided in our hospitals by both the employed physicians and the private practice physicians. Because our neighbors really don't care who employs who. No. They just assume, they assume that the hospital has figured out how to provide the highest quality, most efficient care uh, to them and their families when they come in, uh, when they come into the hospital. And that, again, that's accomplished primarily through the hospital's medical staff, mm-hmm. which is governed not only by all members, all members of the medical staff have a vote but it's governed primarily by the Medical Executive Committee. Uh, and the Medical Executive Committee, whenever there is a, um, a problem or an issue with care um, by a uh, physician, and, you know, which is um, fortunately infrequent, but it does happen because physicians uh, and those uh, you know, others who are credentialed on the medical staff, they're humans. And... Um, Sometimes uh, mistakes are made, and sometimes it's uh, the mistakes are so um, substantial that the medical staff needs to take action. And the medical staff will take action through a 
uh, very confidential peer review process, um, and the the physicians who participate in that peer review process are granted immunity by various laws, um, so that they are they can feel free to do the right thing uh, with regard to their physician colleague, uh, without fear of of uh, of personal liability and litigation by the physician who. Who, who may feel wronged mm-hmm. by, um, by, that, uh, by that medical staff action. And the, you know, when there is a medical staff action, then uh, that if it, if it is the, um, something really substantial action that is taken by the, by the medical executive committee, then that actually has to go up to the board of directors or board of trustees of the hospital um, to, to take the action of, revoking privileges. And there are other various um, actions that can be taken by medical staffs yeah, as well. Sure. Limitation of privileges, you know, requiring uh, proctoring or supervision for us for a certain amount of time um, to, um, to make sure that that particular physician uh, comes back into uh, caring for patients in the hospital in the appropriate manner. Uh, so it's, it's really a very tightly governed, um, very um, very detailed analysis uh, and actions that occur both at the medical staff level and then at the hospital board level. Right. I mean, I guess the impact that you just say you could sort of say in essence the there's a uh, the hospital staff is the the ones who make sure all the equipment, all the the supplies, all hospital that management. Right. 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 That they mm. that you have what right. you need, and the right. medical staff is make sure that it's delivered properly. And then they make recommendations to the hospital, say, hey, you know, it'd be nice if we had X, Y, or Z machine or some new right. medication. And the hospitals will say, you know what, our focus now, we're going to work on transplants or something. We're gonna, we, need to, we're gonna, we're gonna, we need to recruit people to do this. This is our new objective from our board, right? That would be sort of <laughs> a recommendation. Yeah. I mean, this is our strategic plan, and this is what we need to do to achieve our strategic plan is more along the lines of the hospital board. But then, you know, core to that, is the quality of care yeah. that is provided by, by by the medical staff and and that medical staff governance is is key right and it, i mean i guess my experience with the medical staff generally is is that the the primarily what you're doing is making sure that whatever care that needs to be provided in the hospital there's someone to do it right we need to make sure we have putting speaking as anesthesiologist make sure we have good epidural coverage for for laboring women so and it's gotten busier so you need to have more people there or you need more support staff in order to get get the, the throughput so we can get all the stuff done that needs to be done uh, or there's a new service line that's opened up because maybe there's a new procedure that didn't exist before. And now we have to find a way to, to make sure it's covered. And so that's the sort of the medical staff issue. And then there's the, then there's the other part that you're talking about, which is the um, I guess when people don't behave properly, either, either disciplinary actions disciplinary or, or, or quality of care actions right. or, or competence, you know, sure. you know, you know, clinical competence issues that are identified by the medical staff, which is, which is really, in, in, as you're familiar with, the very core to the history of American medicine has been the value of peer review, of peer physicians with expertise uh, reviewing and, and governing and holding accountable their peer physicians uh, to make sure that, that the right thing is being done. Right. And, and the tricky thing with all this is, the, as you mentioned briefly there, is that there's the, the risk of litigation if you, were, if you did not have some sort of closed system uh, without... Um, what's the term where uh, there's where you can gather and you can get um, oh a, a peer review privilege yeah where there's no privileges is so you know I sit on a I chair one of the boards uh, the boards to um, for credentialing which credentialing process essentially just means that you're allowing someone to work right. within the hospital right and and there is a level of um, protection for us making decisions correct in that process so that we can act properly it's just like having a limited liability corporation right where you have where you can't the, go the, the shareholders or the owners are not personally liable for the action right but, yeah but the, or, the organization could be the corporation could Correct. be but but those you know so long as the physicians on the credentialing committee or or a professional standards committee for example or a peer review committee are acting in good faith and acting within the scope of their duties then they are uh, personally generally personally um uh, immune from liability. Yeah. And so, so that they can do the right thing without having to look over their shoulders and wondering whether they're going to get sued 
by one of their colleagues for doing the right thing. Yes. Obviously, the human aspect of that is very, it's, it's a very challenging job in the sense if you have a disciplinary action and it's someone, a colleague you work with or you may be familiar with, you have to discipline them or have some say, you know, you can't speak that way to someone in the opera room or on or, the or, floor. Or you can't throw a scalpel throw at a, a colleague. Yeah. You can't grab someone and shake them. I mean, they're all kind, just about anything you can imagine has happened in some hospital somewhere because we were talking about thousands of individuals who are thousands humans. of people. They're interacting they're, with each other. And, and they're flawed humans and they, they make mistakes. Yeah, and we're working oftentimes in very stressful situations mm-hmm. where you, you know, emotions run high and it's hard to, you know, there things happen and, uh, doesn't excuse them, but it certainly makes it, it's a challenging work environment oftentimes. And so, um, let's talk briefly about, so this is how the hospital works. And this is probably the case in most hospitals. I suppose if you are maybe like a, I'm guessing a close system like Mayo may be different in the sense that probably all of those are in one because all the physicians so employ. Mayo probably, clinic, uh, for example, is, is a closed staff model where, um, their, their clinics, are staffed exclusively by physicians employed by the Mayo Clinic. Right. Um, so they still have a medical staff because they um, their hospitals are still licensed by um, by the state, still accredited by by the federal government, and um, uh, you know participate in the Medicare uh, program. So they're still required to have a medical staff, still required to have all of the peer review and credentialing bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. But um, their lives are simplified a little bit in, in that um, their medical staff is is uh, fully employed by the by the Mayo Clinic. Right. Uh, same same with with uh, Cleveland Clinic. I mean, with these yeah, that's the the, other, these the these these, yeah. these uh, clinic models, which are also uh, nonprofit mm-hmm. um, tax exempt organizations, uh, very similar to Spectrum Health, except Spectrum Health is. Um, uh, much more inclusive of uh, not only the employed medical staff, but also of the um, of the private independent medical staff. Yeah, and I mean, there are certainly advantages, disadvantages to both systems, and that's mm-hmm. ones that are obvious, I suppose, and less obvious probably if you dug into a little further. the The way I'd say I would describe our system is probably more more typical, certainly in the country uh, that yes. most hospitals, outside of like again a university system, would probably be more of a closed system as well. But um, these these hospitals the way they're structured and the reason, reason they're the way they are is probably because of, for historical reasons, right? I mean, there's that sort of, it organically sort of became, this seemed to be the way you could get people to work in a hospital. At one time, 100, 200 years ago, there probably weren't, there weren't many hospitals. And those that were, were very much charity, right? Philanthropic institutions or... Well, they still through, are. through the Well, right, yes. But I mean, I guess what I mean is... Um, they didn't have many, many resources, and today it's different, True. right? And, and that's it. so. Like True. it was. Well, it was before the advent of. I mean, it was em, before employer-sponsored health insurance, yeah, for sure. example, where where you had and and before the advent of the Medicare and Medicaid programs, where you know bef- before you had health insurance and government-sponsored health programs, families paid for health care out of their pockets. Sure. Um, or, yeah. Or through the church, and, right? Or, or through the church. Money and, through, yeah, you know, right. So you know, a lot of the history of, of tax-exempt charitable health care is through faith-based organizations. Um, and, you know, there's a, you know, certainly there's a very strong heritage of, of uh, charity um, health care through, through the Christian church, but there's also a very strong heritage of that through Islamic faith traditions. Um, it's um, been categorized as a moral imperative um, in Islam that um, that that free health care is provided to to those who need it. Uh, so it's it's really been um, that tradition of charitable health care that most you know, the vast majority of hospitals in the United States are tax exempt nonprofit corporations that are required by federal law to provide charity care, to provide either um, completely free care to those who can't afford it, or uh, many hospitals have a sliding scale um, uh, for, uh, for, for uh, discounts for, the, for those who, who can't afford care. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's, it's pretty clear that most, and when you go to most hospitals, they oftentimes have saint in front of their name yes. or, right, or... Um, Beth Israel, or there's some sort of, it, 
affiliation with a with a religious organization, mm-hmm. whether they're the those organizations are strongly moving forward their values and ideals at this point, it just depends on sort of the situation, right? Talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned before how hospitals are getting bigger. Uh, they're certainly, some people would call it just class as gobbling up or, but certainly they're consolidating their, 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 this health system, they're actually systems, right? It's no longer just a hospital in town where you used to have five hospitals. Now you have two hospitals and it's a system and now they've got more integrated care and stuff. That's been a relatively recent phenomenon within the last 30 years or so. It's really, but especially the last decade or two, it's really accelerated. What do you think? You mentioned regulation. Can you specifically mention sort of what you think the primary drivers of that, of, you know, what part of the regulation is it driving that? Is, is, is it all EHR? Because it seems like this has happened before No, EHR. no, no, it's not all. It's certainly not all EHR. Um, so, you know, many of the areas of regulation that are really expensive to comply with are, you know, the Stark Law, the Fraud and Abuse Law. Certainly, all the coding. So explain and Stark because you, people always throw out Stark, and that's actually named after Congressman Pete Stark, Pete I Stark think from yes. California. What exactly is Stark Law? Because there are always people like worrying, oh, you're violating Stark Law. I mean, I always hear mm. that from physicians. Well, it, it's actually very easy to violate the Stark Law, unfortunately, because it's um, it's a strict compliance law. Uh, there's no there's very little gray area uh, in the Stark Law. Actually, there's due to recent regulations, there is um, an increasing amount of gray area. There's some um, it's a tiny bit more difficult to violate the Stark Law now than it used to be. But uh, the Stark Law basically stands for the proposition that a a Medicare hospital... Um, which is most hospitals. Which is right? most, mo- most hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, cannot bill for a Medicare reimbursed service for a Medicare beneficiary um, if that beneficiary was, if that service was referred by a physician with whom that hospital has a financial relationship, unless that hospital meets one of many exceptions to the Stark Law. So so an example, an example is that um, if a physician employed by a hospital performs a surgery mm-hmm. yeah. in, in that hospital, uh, the hospital is not permitted to bill for that surgery to Medicare unless they're very careful about complying with the employment exception to the Stark Law. Another example is um, if a private physician group has a um, services contract or a coverage agreement with a hospital um, and uh, that group refers um, some imaging, a MRI, to, to the hospital the hospital is prohibited from billing for that MRI unless the exception is met. And the exception you know, includes things like making sure that uh, payments for the services being provided by the group are at fair market value. Okay. Um, Whatever um, that is. <laughs> and, 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 are, and are medically necessary, not just, I mean, there have been many hospitals, unfortunately, you know, some of these bad apples we talked about at the beginning of the mm-hmm. show, where they have made up services to pay referring physicians for and they've essentially been buying referrals. Yeah. They've been saying, well, we know we really don't need this medical director service, but wink and a nod, we'll pay you 200 bucks an hour to provide you know, 20 hours a month, and we know you're not providing any services because, we, doctor, we really don't need those services from you, but keep sending those referrals our right. way. And, and an example of that is you say someone could be a director of surgery, you already have two other directors of surgery, but you know this, you want this nurse surgeon to bring all their back cases to you and so right. that you would pay that you're basically paying this person right. off to bring all their cases exactly you know, their and, stuff to you. and and i'm i've been very fortunate never to have um worked for you know certainly not my current employer nor any any previous uh, clients in my private practice have, have ever been engaged <laughs> in, intentionally in that practice but but there are um you know you you see the headlines out there you see the court cases out there where um folks um go down the wrong path and and they uh, get into a, um, a very difficult situation. So you could almost describe the Stark law as in, in some sense sort of an anti-kickback law, right? I mean, so it's it's a way of saying if, you've got, if you're a group of, say, urologists, you don't just keep, or a group of a couple, maybe a multi-specialty surgeon group, you're not referring all your patients to the other surgeon just within your group who don't really need 
or you just maybe maybe you provide imaging services at your and you're just getting a bunch of X-rays that you don't that are unnecessary, right? That that's a violation of the Stark Law that you're. Um, if it, it generally would care. be, but something very interesting about the Stark Law is that it is not it is not intent based. You can violate it without intending to violate it. If, if, oh, okay, sure. If, right. if a hospital is making payments to a referring physician um, and they unintentionally, they, um, you know, they, they didn't understand that the amount they were paying that physician was way above fair market value. Well, you know, they did not intentionally pay that physician above fair market value, but it didn't qualify for the Stark exception, so they violated the Stark Law. Mm-hmm. and. Um, they would have to pay back all of the amounts um, they've billed for those prohibited referrals, plus many times damages sure. in, uh, in addition to that. Now, the more serious, I mean, you know, Stark Law violations can get really very expensive, but the more serious, um, more financially substantial violations for a hospital is uh, something called the anti-kickback statute or AKS. And that's, that is the intent-based statute where if the federal government of the federal prosecutor can prove to the court that the hospital actually intended to pay a physician to refer services uh, to their hospital, then the, uh, the damages uh, and criminal I mean that's a criminal law, and the criminal and the, the criminal penalties uh, for the hospital, and in many cases, under the False Claims Act, for um, hospital executives and for physicians personally, can be hugely substantial. Yeah, I mean that's that, and that's always the fear that people have. I mean, I think you have regulations, and you would, I guess, I think people always assume regu- regu- regulations are fairly cut and dry. Like, again, you put poison something you don't, right? But I think. Oftentimes there there are the gray areas and maybe maybe gray areas isn't even the wrong term for it, but it's certainly there's interpretations maybe is the best way to put it. Like what is actually allowable, not allowable, and and as practices change and as you know the industry changes, things that were never imagined by regulators suddenly have to be regulated and they interpret it the way they. You know, and this can become an expensive legal discussion one one way or the other, and you're in the court, right? I mean, or at least you're dealing with regulators. Which reminds me, actually, so uh, you do you have as do you interact frequently with regulators? I mean, from a regulatory standpoint, from the hospital, what kind of regulators are you dealing with? We all in the hospital, we always know Jayco or the eight. Um, I think it's uh, sure. So, a, so Jayco being, being the Joint Commission, the, Commission, the accrediting right. body, uh, certainly they will uh, survey but, us periodically. They're, they're to, a private to group. Us. Just to be they clear, are a private they're group, private public. But, it's kind of hard to describe. But the, the, but the federal government relies substantially right. on the accrediting agencies uh, for um, for certification. Uh, sometimes you'll have uh, the government come in behind uh, a private accrediting group like the Joint Commission uh, to do do their own survey, but uh, many times they will rely largely on on the joint commission for the accreditation you know the accreditation is is um you know what quality measures are in place to make sure that that uh, quality of care is is being provided what is uh, infection control um what um safety measures are being taken both for patients and for employees yeah sure uh so all of the um bells and whistles that are important not only for a care environment to operate, but importantly to the accreditors uh, for that care environment to operate in a quality, safe way that does not result in patient harm. Uh, but the as to the true government agencies that we work with on a regular basis, both uh, state and federal, uh, I would say uh, in our acute care environment, um, primarily federal, uh, so we're very, very careful with our patients' uh, private health information. You know, their their um, their uh, PHI under the HIPAA laws uh, is very closely guarded by us. And occasionally, we will have an employee who disregards uh, his or her training and will choose to get into um, their neighbor's medical record or. Yeah an ex-husband's or yeah. ex-girlfriend's medical record and dig around. And we have mechanisms that identify that. Uh, if it's over 500 um, patients who are who are involved in a breach or a disclosure, 
then uh, we're in the mode of not only notifying those patients in the disclosure, but also notifying the um, Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Health and Human Services of that, and then they will launch, launch an investigation. Their investigations can also be launched from the other way by patients who complain uh, that their uh, privacy may have been may have been compromised. Uh, so we'll we'll deal also with um, you know with the federal government when they have um, when the Centers for Medicare and Medicare Services uh, have concerns about billing. Um, billing for certain conditions or certain codes or, you know, was it truly medically necessary, et cetera. Uh, and because those, I mean, that's really, again, one of the areas of regulation that drives up healthcare costs very substantially um, because of the, um, the resources that we employ to make sure that we're doing everything we can uh, not to unintentionally yeah. Uh, violate those those regs and and, the, and those laws, and I mean it's very easy because these regs and laws are so hyper complex. It's very easy to unintentionally uh, and and systemically fall into a violation where um, the trainers um, around how to how to build a certain code didn't fully understand how to build that code, and they trained a bunch of providers and a bunch of coders. To well, you know, this is how you this is how you code it. And this is how you bill it, mm-hmm. and it is just one smidge off. And because you're just one smidge off of something that um, a uh, nuclear physicist might not be able to understand, you get caught up in a uh, in an investigation or a repayment or or something that is um, that, that that's very difficult to navigate. Um, and again, nobody was trying to do anything wrong. But it's because of this very complex labyrinth that our that our uh, federal and state governments have, have set up. It's it's very easy for well-intentioned folks to uh, to go down the wrong road. And this would this would lead to your initial point talking about consolidation because if you're a small hospital, you're the the regulatory uh, requirements are no different from a large giant hospital versus a small hospital, right? I mean, it's pretty much the same. And so the 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 bur- the um, the the amount of resource you have to spend is, I mean, it's different because you obviously have a bigger scale. But essentially, you have to have a certain level, base level of knowledge and and that's that's exactly right. right. And so, if you're a small or small operation like a small hospital, you may not be able to you may not be able to re- meet that. And so, then you look out you look out for someone to provide those services for you either in the market. But again, that there's a price. It's expensive. That. It's expensive. Yeah. And then, or you just say, Hey, can you come over and we'll just join your organization because it's, and, and we've got a department who does this and, yeah, right. and, and we, in many cases don't have to add extra resources to, um, to, to help them out. Sometimes right. we do because it's, it's all scalable. I mean, you can, you can only add so many small hospitals to an organization without, without adding additional legal risk and compliance resources to attend to their needs. Right. I mean, this is always, this is a classic example of regulatory capture, right? That you, you, you continually increase regula- regulations for an industry until you you pretty much eliminate the opportunity for anyone to enter the market because the th- the barrier is so high. It's just it's hard to come in and actually make and make right. money and get in something. It's sort of classic for any any sort of industry as it gets more mature. That and then they say, oh, we'd love to be regulated. And you see, it's like even for like the social media companies, you start seeing this too from Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. and as they look to prevent new competitors from coming in and taking their market share by just preventing them from entering. Until someone comes in and they can actually, no matter what they do, they they <laughs> they lose their market, uh, just like the taxi cabs, right? Forever kept people taxis off the roads, but until Uber came along. Well, and there are still added. some towns that are trying to keep uh, Uber off the road. Well, sure, yeah, right? I mean, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. But... Um, so let's change tracks a little bit because one of the things I want to talk about is, and I want to talk about you. I know you're not an expert on <laughs> accreditation and, and credentialing, and I guess based when we talked earlier about medical staff, they medical staff have to get credentialed. So we don't. So a hospital doesn't just let anybody come off the street and say, right. "Hey, I'd like to practice in dermatology in your hospital." You're like, "Well, you know, are you trained in dermatology? Do you have what sort of you know qualifications? Have you people who say you're a good person? Have not you know a thief and stuff like that?" And so most hospitals have. Well, I think all hospitals have credentialing credit, offices. Credentialing offices. Right. They have some sort of process that you go through, and you have to prove your medical degrees or your, how much experience you board have. Board certification. You know, most everything, unless your grandfather did now re- requires board certification. Right. 
and and um, and then again, these boards will then meet uh, or these committees, I guess, and they will decide if you've met the threshold. I mean, it's really it's mostly just paperwork annoyance for most for most people for credentialing. Uh, but there are the individuals who've been to seven hospitals and now it it. If you've been in seven hospitals in seven years, I mean, are you a locum, which is someone who just goes from hospital to hospital to help provide coverage because they don't feel they don't feel particularly tied to an area and they like going to different places? Or is it are they get seven hospitals because they've sort of been kicked out of seven hospitals, right? And that's, that's always a red flag. When we see yeah. somebody, when our, we, the royal, royal we, I mean, certainly it's, yeah. it's, it's the professionals in our, in our credentialing office. When they see somebody who has been to numerous facilities over uh, a uh, pretty uh, time compressed period that will raise a lot of red flags yeah. and, and that draws extra scrutiny. You know, certainly technology has actually made our uh, credentialing professionals jobs much easier now. Um, you know, there are databases, the national practitioner data bank, which um, all hospitals are required to report to, uh, certainly in more egregious situations when uh, a physician loses his or her privileges, when their privileges are revoked, well, that always goes not only to the National Practitioner Data Bank, but also to the state licensing authority in that particular state. But there are other um, privileging actions, um, uh, different uh, limitations or suspensions, or even a resignation um, under some type of threat of, of um, revocation that, that are required to be reported. So in the past 15 to 20 years, we've seen a lot of progress in um, how hospitals are reporting bad actors so that they are not passed around to inflict harm on patients in, in other facilities. Um, I would not say it's it's perfect. I mean, I do think there are some hospitals who from time to time, um, due to fear of litigation, um, unfortunately don't report what they could or should uh, to the uh, National Practitioner Data Bank or to the state licensing authorities. Um, or when you get pinged um, by a uh, subsequent hospital to that subsequent hospital, uh, there's a lot of things that that subsequent hospital would want to know. Um, at our organization, uh, we're very diligent, very careful about making sure that that everything is reported that needs to re- be reported to prevent uh, future harm. Uh, we've seen instances, though. Uh, I, I think, Eric, you've listened to um, at least a few of the episodes of Dr. Death, which is a uh, podcast I would highly, highly recommend uh, a terrible example of credentialing gone wrong um, at a uh, at a, a series of Texas hospitals, and this physician was um, really allowed to do harm to yeah. um, you know change the lives of many families. Uh, actually, several deaths resulted from uh, from this physician's uh, activities that could have been stopped much earlier had the credentialing rigor of um, of his facilities been up to par and it was really thanks to some heroic activities of um, two physicians in particular who really put their own careers on the line to make sure that this physician did not harm anybody else uh, that, that that he was finally finally removed yeah I think it's it's very easy to see how these things happen it's I I don't I don't like saying it that way but um, when you have these or you have someone who comes into the hospital, let's say it's a new, a new graduate from a residency program. So they have no history and there's always the understanding that they're going to be slower. They're not going to, you know, and I'm just going to look at it from a surgical perspective because that's where I'm most familiar, but they're, um, they're not as skilled as someone who's been in practice for 10 to 15 years. And so you have to, you have to look at them and say, okay, is this someone who is dangerous? Is this someone who is doing harm because they're reckless or is this someone who's just learning and practicing and they're, their errors are ones that are correctable and that are due to inexperience. Uh, that makes people kind of scared to hear that people talk about that. <laughs> but you think about this, anyone, if you watch any profession, it's always this way, right? Whatever you do, when you first start doing it, you're more likely to make mistakes or to not be as polished as someone who's been in the career for a while. Whatever it is, whether you're an electrician, whether you're a baseball player, right? The rookies don't play as well as the veterans. <laughs> and, uh, 
So it's the same in medicine. And then the, the tricky thing is oftentimes is this someone, how do you differentiate? And, and I'm not asking you except to say that it is very difficult to, to sometimes determine that until you have some experience. And then once you do figure out or have some idea of what you figured out, can you prove that this is, that this is a problem? And that is very challenging to someone to say, well, your complication rate is, exceeds what we expect. I mean, sometimes it's obvious. Some people are just crazy reckless, but sometimes it is hard to, to, to know for sure. And then the easy solution oftentimes is, why don't you just not work here anymore? Uh, and and then it becomes, becomes somebody else's problem. Exactly. Yeah. Which is very difficult. Yeah. And, and, and you can, and you can, the, the example with Christopher Dunch from Texas, we're talking about, uh, Dr. Dunch, it was sort of like one of those things where a bunch of people notice problems, but they're kind of like, it's sometimes hard to sort of prove it. It's also, it's confrontation. And so people don't like to confrontation in general. And, you know, you they don't want to get involved. Well, you, not they only do you want to get involved, but I would argue that, you know, anytime you criticize someone else, well, guess what? I've made mistakes too. And right. So they could just as well come back and say, well, you've made mistakes. You know, we don't have, let's have a discussion about you. Right. And, and so it's just, it, the human element is always there. And so it's really challenging to do the right thing sometimes, or at least go, go that far. I, th- I think it, one key element in all of this is culture, the culture of an organization and especially the culture of a medical staff. Yeah. An organization and the medical staff of that organization can put in place all of the beautiful, elegant procedures and policies uh, that, that they want, but they will all fail if the culture is not one that values safety, quality, accountability, doing the right thing, and creates a safe environment for all members of the care team to speak up when something isn't going right and when they know something isn't going right. We've seen um, numerous breakdowns, and not just in healthcare, but in other complex organizations in, in the past where it's not that safe culture. Uh, where they've got beautiful policies and procedures, but but the culture is such that people don't feel comfortable stepping up to do, to, to do the right thing. So we've we've been um, very intentional, and it's and it's been a journey uh, over the past seventeen years. I've been with the organization. I've seen so much progress in making it an open, safe environment for any member of the care team, a nurse, especially to call a timeout where. Um, Everybody understands that any member of the of the care team has has the ability, the very welcomed ability to say, "Stop, this isn't going right." You know, we need to. We didn't go down the checklist. Remember, doctor, we have. Let's stop. Let's go down the checklist. I know you don't like the checklist, doctor, but let's go down the checklist to make sure we're not going to do a wrong sided surgery. Right. Make sure we've got the right knee here. Um. So I. I, I, I think, uh, again, I'm a broken record here, but it, it <laughs> comes down to culture. Yeah. Oh, I, and I don't think there's any question about that. And I think when it comes to safety, I think it's, uh, it's important too, to note that when it comes to culture and the setting, uh, setting a safety culture and one in which anyone can speak up, the janitor walks by, see something that's just not right. Like a bunch of sharps sitting out or whatever, or that you have to have a, an, a, a process where there is not really any retribution, right? Like it's, there's a rec, you have to almost have a, an, an attitude that, that mistakes are going to be made all the time because we're all, we're, it's a human institution and they're humans operating or moving, you know, moving parts all the time. And so there are going to be mistakes made, hopefully none of them that are important or that result in any harm to someone or significant uh, problems, but that you have to have where you can report it uh, and that you encourage reporting and that there's no actual, that, that, that errors are seen more as a, a process problem than an individual like right. you're a lousy person. And that is very difficult because most of the time when in organizations they have, again, whatever policy procedures and plans and stuff you have, and you, you say everyone should report any problems. But if you know that, that, that reporting someone who did something wrong is likely to get that person in trouble or if they're going to some sort of harm to their family or whatever, you're much less likely to speak up about that, uh, or, you know, certainly if there's retribution towards you, if you're, you know, 
a lower status in the organization. Uh, that's really hard to have a, a system that really encourages lots it, of reporting. It takes a lot of hard work to get to the point uh, of, of an organization uh, where an organization does not have fear of retribution for doing the right thing. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably the hardest thing, right, to have as an organization, and I don't know. I mean, that's, that's one thing I know a lot of hospitals work towards, but it's really hard to implement without, because you're, you're, you have limited resources in dealing with, I shouldn't say complaints, but dealing with these issues. And so it's almost easier just, okay, I, this person's had 20, you know, instances of problems. Let's just sit them down and talk to them about it rather than saying, let's figure out the process of why this keeps happening. You know? Yeah. And it's, um, it really, you know, we were talking about, you know, the culture, I was probably focusing too much on the the in-the-moment culture of speaking up when you see something that isn't isn't right and is not going um, in the right direction for that particular patient. But I believe that, that having that safe culture and that, that safety culture and that safe environment where folks feel okay speaking up, I think that bleeds over into feeling safe to speak up when you see a pattern in a particular right. provider. That's different. And, yes. and that is different yeah. because that is, um, and, and that's bigger and more substantial because then you're really talking about impacting somebody's career and somebody's family and somebody's livelihood and that's higher stakes. But I know that, that our clinicians, um, by and large focus more on, on the patient and focus more on the harm that needs to be avoided uh, for the patient and for future patients. Uh, as difficult as that is because they have friends and colleagues, but if that, but I, most of the folks um, I work with and I'm familiar with in, in the clinical setting, um, as difficult as it, as it is, will, will put the patient first ahead of, 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 of a colleague who's, um, who should not be, who clearly should not be practice, practicing anymore. And, and that's, but it's very rare to find a colleague who, sh- who shouldn't be practicing anymore because more often than not, it's the colleague who, who needs to, um, do some things differently. Um, and, yeah. and, uh, uh, reform some, you know, and a, a lot of it is actually behavioral. Yeah. I, I, I mean, know, I mean I, there's, there's a lot of disruptive physicians where, where it's not, um, it's not so much the quality of the clinical care. There, there's not yeah. clinical incompetence, but it's it's really how they're treating others in the care environment that that can um, uh, that can lead to problems with um, with their medical staff status. And, and and I said a lot. There actually, fortunately, aren't a lot of those that I that I'm familiar with. But but that that comes up. I would uh, I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but I, I think it's probably probably half of the issues that are coming to. Um, medical staffs to deal with are more behavioral in nature than they are clinical competence in nature. I, th- I feel that's probably a low number. Uh, I think it's more than that. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, I talked to, so I was president of my group for four years. And so again, I was surprised at, at the level of behavioral issues that you deal with in an organization. People who are intelligent, they're highly successful and yet Un- incapable of like behaving properly in most settings. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and then I talk to other people now who are, you know, patients who are managers of a restaurant or whatever. And it's the same thing, right? It's like the number one headache is always behavioral issues and people are disruptive. And so medicine's no different, right? It's like, it's this, it's the same. I'm sure it's the same within your corporation in your in the corporate structure. I mean, it's every large organization has this problem and, and that's actually the least fun part of the of the job, any sort of leadership, is dealing with people who are just unwilling to get along, or who are, for whatever reason, just have to. They just don't mesh well with some certain person, or with whatever the goals are of your of your group. Um, anyway, that's that was my, that was my impression when I was uh, in leadership. But you know, with, going back a little bit, we talked about the National Practitioner Data Bank, and so this is a this is a place where it houses. Instances where you've lost, like you mentioned, where you've been suspended from a hospital, and so that if you go and apply for credentialing at another hospital, let's say across the country, yeah. that that hospital will be able to look in and say, oh, hey, based on your uh, national pro- provider ID number, uh, you've had these actions against you. So then what happens oftentimes in, in the 
in the medical staff office is so the medical executive has to decide what to do for disciplination or disciplining of of a physician or some other person in the hospital and they will the there's the thresholds are oftentimes used as sort of guidelines like is this so severe that this person should be reported nationally it's sort of like the you know the scarlet a going to be on their chest for the rest of their career or are we just going to say this is going to be one week it's interesting how that the national pressure data bank has in many ways dictated the sort of discipline and you know actions we we perform on for, but there's really not a there's not i'm not saying there's, there's not way. a lot of discretion as to what can and can't be reported to the uh to the data bank it's it's um in most cases, it's very clear whether a particular action or a particular event needs to be reported to the databank. So right. it, it, there's not a lot of um, gray area or or uh, leeway there. What I would say then about, you know, once there is a medical staff action or a resignation reported to the databank, um, then it's really up to the subsequent hospitals to decide what to do with that, with yeah, that, sure. with that information. And, uh, most of those organizations, um, will, um, understand that they have vulnerability, uh, to be, um, engaging in what's called negligent credentialing. If they bring somebody on their staff with full knowledge that this person has had past issues. Uh, now there are some situations where, um, there are explanations for why um, why that databank um, information is in there, and through a thorough, way in depth investigation, um, the hospital can get comfortable uh, uh, bringing that that uh, physician with a databank uh, reporting in into their organization. But I I, th- I think it's it's pretty rare that a uh, physician with um, National Practitioner Data Bank uh, reporting information in any substantial manner on the record um, is uh, welcomed on to a medical staff of a reputable hospital. Yeah, it certainly it makes it more challenging. And and I know that when we've had instances on our credentialing where we have someone who's, I don't want to say suspect, but certainly have uh, maybe something in the past that you're concerned about, you have you have extra hoops or extra evaluations and people tracking them and making sure that that you've at least got some, keep an eye on, a closer eye on them than you would the average person, right? I mean, that's... More monitoring. In, yeah. so, in some cases, uh, proctoring. You know, sure. you know, many would say, well, if you know you're bringing somebody on right away, they'll need proctoring. Why bring that person on at all? But it's, you know, it's a fact-specific uh, analysis every time. Yeah, I mean, we have, and we have challenges because we do background checks on everybody. And so there are times when people have a DUI or two DUIs. Well, what do you do with that? It's hard to know, right? I mean, it's, it was 10, 15 years ago. Well, maybe you don't worry about what it. What if their clinical care is excellent over the, you know, since then? What, what if, if they've they turned have, over a new leaf? Or what if they just haven't been getting caught, right? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to know those things. And, or, you know, uh, one of the local colleges is class is, uh, if they graduate from one of these local colleges, they almost all have a minor in possession <laughs> charge. It's like a very common thing. When they're 18 or 19, they just, it's like a money money generated for the for the university. So, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to know what to do with those things, especially when it's further out. But I think you know, that's that's a challenge with it. Um, when it so when it comes to like the someone like Dr. Dench, it it's hard to sort of expose this thing. It's hard to um, oftentimes prove things without great personal risk or at least collegial risk. Uh, and you just have to have a hospital that are willing to, I suppose, support the people who are the whistleblowers, we'll call them, uh, in this situation. But you can see how it happens, like these, these things happen, where someone is sort of kind of okay, they seem okay, but then they, their outcomes are not okay, right? And, it's, and unfortunately, um, there have been numerous instances um, in the past um, 10, 15 years, less, less recently, because I, I think, um, um, organizations are increasingly more careful, but there have been numerous instances where, uh, it's been shown, uh, in these high profile litigation cases that hospital management actively looked the other way, right? Knew what was going on, but this particular surgeon, this particular pain management physician, sure. for example, was generating so much revenue for that particular hospital uh, 
that they look the other way. Yeah, right. And and that actually, I mean, not only can that result in huge liability and should result in huge liability for organizations that that actively look the other way um, from a uh, medical malpractice perspective, but um, it's also now been identified by the federal government as um, as a potential false claims act uh, claim where, um, if, if that person is not providing, uh, quality care, then the, you know, then the Medicare program says, well, why should we be, be paying for it then? Yeah. Uh, so there's, um, so there's all sorts of different hot water folks can get in if they don't pay attention to these, um, uh, these folks who are not providing quality care and actually creating unsafe environments for the patient. Well, I think that's a good summation of sort of thing. Although, actually, one question. I always say I'm done, and I remember that. One more question. Uh, I have, I've had on the past, I don't know if you listened to Dr. Houston. She had a credentialing problem, actually, where she was providing emergency work for, for a hospital and then left the hospital. I think she was doing locum work, if I recall. I'm not sure. I can't remember the specifics. But she left the hospital, and she's working in another state. And then she was summoned uh, that she got in trouble basically because the prior hospital continued using her her identification as providing care for patients in the emergency room months after she had already left and so she was left with trying to prove that she wasn't the one who she wasn't who submitted it because the other hospital was submitting all the bills for her because they were just were they, they hired were, her. were they still billing on her yeah the previous still, hospital was still billing yeah, on her yeah. behalf and so well, it, that it became like a big a... problem to her because she suddenly lost her, i mean she was you know like from a licensing standpoint she was practicing with her license, I think in the actual state of, I think it was, I can't remember what state she was in, maybe it was Florida at the time. Uh, and so her, one of her goals is to try and have a use to you for physicians to actually control their credentials hmm. as opposed to having the hospital. Because right now the hospitals control all the information in the, in the credentialing process, but instead to have the, the physicians have all that information stored on a blockchain and that way they have a more secure I guess they can they can secure their their identity much better and and they as opposed to letting the hospitals control it. I, I have seen a business model out there. It's a startup. I forget the name of the startup, but um, where they are establishing themselves as a credentialing a creden- credentialing clearinghouse mm-hmm. for um, all sorts of different types of providers. And I could see I could see that type of organization being really very helpful and, and being able to catch. Uh, instances uh, like you just described, but um, but it you know unfortunately it sounds like um, a situation where that previous hospital didn't do the right thing either intentionally or, or unintentionally. Yeah, it was, it was probably unintentional, but yeah. um, but it it also seems that CMS could set up some um, some mechanisms for that within their IT systems where it should be able to flag it. It should be able to catch it where, where this hospital in this region is billing for the same physician as this hospital in this, in, in this other region. And, you know, they, it should be able to throw up some, some red flags and you shouldn't be able to have, um, the physician, um, being billed for in yeah. two separate hospitals in two separate markets that, that, you know, at some point the computer should just, should spit that out with an audit flag. And I suppose at some point it did, but it probably it probably took a while. Mm-hmm. And and we always we always assume these levels of efficiency and detection that just don't exist within because you know even like if you look at auditing for the IRS, it's it's very small percentage of people who are actually audited, and so you, it is very much the honor system that we perform most things. Whether that's you know even how many meat inspectors are there really in the country? There probably aren't that many, right? But you know that there's a potential that are going to come by. Most people are doing the right thing anyway, and so it's really not an issue. Uh, same thing with the JCO, you know, with the joint commission, when it comes to inspect, we know they can come by any time, but we also know when they're there. Right. And so thing, and so, uh, and they're just not there very often because they only have, they can't be everywhere. Right. That's all. That's the point of, anyway, it just, within it comes to regulation, it's always tricky as far, <laughs> as far as how it's actually enforced. So you're not the usual uh, public persona that I have on the show, but is there places people, do you write much? Do you, do you have, or you, I mean, aside of legal opinions that that are just within the, <laughs> the corporate structure. When I was structure. younger, I wrote uh, a lot more articles. I haven't written an article in a while now, but I I, uh, I am on Twitter at dm leonard at dm leonard two thousand one. 
although uh, I must admit that I uh, don't tweet very much. Maybe I need to uh, uh, get into that like, uh, like the rest of the civilized world. Is it is it tough for you to, to tweet uh, as a corporate trainer? I mean, because you're probably restricted in, you're probably limited a little bit in what you can sort of comment on, right? I mean, because you are representing, you're the face of the organization on some level as opposed to just a private individual. Which is probably why I, I don't tweet very yeah, much. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, no, but I, I can comment on, on different um, areas of, of public policy, you know, so long as they're consistent with and supportive of, um, of, of my client organization's uh, position. And it's just fine. Yeah, right. Well, and that's the case for anybody, right? You can't go on bad mouthing your organization if <laughs> whatever you might be, because yeah. they probably won't like that much either. Well, thanks so much for being on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to the paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.